I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to America Abroad. The United States is often thought of as the land of innovation, a great habitat for entrepreneurs, and that is still the case. But why are other regions of the world producing entrepreneurs at a faster rate than we are? And why, of all places, is sub-Saharan Africa seeing a surge in startups? Hungry or thirsty? Grab hold on your yogurt now. Enjoy that refreshing nourishment from the first sip to the last drop. Polandia Yogurt or Latin America. Vive tu mejor Navidad en Boulevard Centro Comercial. Compra, participa y registra tus facturas en nuestro gran In this hour, we visit some of these places to hear why and what kind of entrepreneurs are succeeding. Though the U.S. has a healthy environment for entrepreneurial growth, is there more that we could be doing here? Lessons we can learn from these places to maintain our edge. Lessons such as the role of women in starting up businesses. Because I'm this kind of dogged woman. I believe that there's nobody that's better than me, so I will always make it even bigger. That's always been my belief in life. And if we do find valuable lessons, how effective are we here in the United States at teaching them to our students? 5,000 courses in entrepreneurship are being offered in the United States, but are students learning the right lessons? All that and more this hour on America Abroad. But first, let's find out why Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa have become entrepreneurial hotspots. Candida Brush has some ideas why. She's co-author of a report on the subject and a professor of entrepreneurship at Babson College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Let's talk generally about entrepreneurship rates and what's happening across the globe. And coming out of this global entrepreneurship report, what surprised you? What was the headline? Well, I'm not sure I was surprised. I think a lot of people are surprised when they find out that, like, the U.S. and Western Europe have the lower rates of entrepreneurship in the world and that the countries that have the higher rates are in Latin America, some Southeast Asia, and Africa. And so I think that is somewhat of a surprise to people because I think there's an assumption that given the U.S. economy and the size and innovation that goes on here, that we would also have the most you know, highest levels of entrepreneurship. Now, we do proportionately have more entrepreneurs, but our rates are, are not as high as some of the other countries. Well, how do you define entrepreneurship? Well, this particular report is based on individuals. So we surveyed individuals in 69 countries, and we capture these individuals based on their activities in the nascent stages. In other words, the question is, are you in the process of thinking about or starting a new business? And if the answer is yes, then we keep them in the sample. So we're not necessarily surveying businesses, which a lot of other organizations and um, government data sets focus on businesses that have employees. So we're capturing them very early on. And we're also asking them about their attitudes and capabilities. So it's more of a desire to create a small business? I mean, how many of these people actually follow through or do you not measure that? No, they are in the process of starting. So they have intention, but they're also in the process of starting. So we're measuring rates of startup in this study. Okay. And then we also measure what happens to them. We focus also on people that have new businesses and some that have established businesses. So new businesses are those that are about 30... 40 months out, and then you have established businesses which are longer out than those. So we measure all three of those categories. We'll hear more from Candida Brush of Babson College in a minute, but first, we wanted to go to one of the boom places, such as Mexico. Even though the economy isn't doing so well there and most businesses fail, thousands of tiny enterprises start up every year. 
Here's one, a small cafe in Mexico City. It's about to mark its second birthday, and it's still going strong. Jennifer Collins reports. It might be generous to call this a little cafe. It's tiny. Owner Jeremy Clouser says the name, Chiquitito, says it all. The place is small. It's only 20 meters square, or which would be about... A very, very rich person's walk-in closet or somebody, <laughs> a very, very poor person's bedroom. Yeah, exactly. Basically enough for the bar and some seating and a couple seats outside. As you may have gathered, Clouser was not raised in Mexico. He grew up partly in Pennsylvania, partly in Tasmania. His wife and behind-the-scenes business partner, Cecilia Morales, is Mexican. They met when they were both studying their master's at the University of London. The idea for this cafe had its inception in London as well. Almost two years ago, Chiquitito became one of the 400,000 businesses that opened their doors every year in Mexico. Startup costs here are low. Clauser started Chiquitito with around $50,000. But there's a downside. The typical business advice, and I've seen it around here, is that most businesses are going to fail. And he says the odds are even more stacked against cafes like his. The coffee market in Mexico is dominated by two or three players. Basically, 70% of the coffee here in Mexico is for instant coffee where you just add water. But Clauser was looking for something a bit closer to real beans. The man behind that sound is Carlos Avendaño. He runs the coffee plantation in Veracruz that supplies Chiquitito. ¿Qué te parece ese? Avendaño is a trained agronomist. His father started the 40-acre coffee plantation 15 years ago. But in their first harvest, coffee prices plummeted worldwide. Just imagine like year before, the price of coffee cherry was 10 pesos per kilogram of those. <laughs> Next year, it was 2 pesos. They started selling the higher quality beans to specialty buyers who pay more. And they began roasting their own to cut out the middlemen. When you roast the coffee, the price is like this. It increases. Avendano and Clauser meet regularly to sample the latest roast. Um, I'm quite happy with it. Uh, the other day there, there was a bit of a smoky flavor, but today it's coming out the way I want it. Chiquitito represents about 10% of Avendano's business, and he expects that'll keep growing. They know what they want, and it's when a business, they don't know their concept, they don't know what they are looking for, it's a high rate of failure, but they know what they want. Espresso culture is expanding in Mexico. Around 400 cafes bear the Starbucks name, and more open up all the time, especially in places like Mexico City's Condesa neighborhood, where Chiquitito is ideally located in terms of its target customer. Well, maybe not ideally located. We're in between two Starbucks. But look to the leafy street outside, and coffee enthusiasts are everywhere carding yoga mats, wheeling their children in designer strollers. Mexico, like many countries in the region, has lately seen a rising population with money to spend. Duncan Wood is the director of the Mexico Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. In a significant number of Latin American countries right now, there's a growing middle class and the, uh, the market opportunities are really growing there as domestic consumption increases. Clauser's biggest lesson the first year in business was learning to charge more for Chiquitito's products. Because if you feel guilty for presenting the price that it should be, then you're not going to have that profit that you need. Clauser's drinks still cost about the same as Starbucks. But customers like Christina Eid say 
they don't come to Chiquitito for the price. Starbucks tastes like soil or something, like they put like soil in water, and here is real coffee. Many of the bigger coffee chains favor bitter, darker roasts. Clauser, who studied international relations, uses his diplomatic skills to get people to switch to high-quality coffee that doesn't need lots of sugar or flavoring. To introduce a lighter roast that kind of shows off the, the profile of the coffee is a process of education. To further that mission, he has six employees and a La Marzocco espresso machine, the kind that can easily cost several thousand dollars. Every latte or cappuccino gets a dash of the foam art that's come to represent high-end cafes. If they come to us, they're going to have as good of an experience coffee-wise as if they would go to their specialty coffee cafe in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. And that approach appears to be paying off. Clauser is currently looking for just the right shoebox to open up his next venture. From Mexico City, this is Jennifer Collins for America Abroad. If Jeremy Clauser seems like a sophisticated businessman, well, he is, because as Mexico's economy develops, so do its entrepreneurs. But not all the hotspot economies that Babson College's Candida Brush studied for her report on entrepreneurship are as advanced as Mexico. Mexico falls into what she describes as an efficiency economy, a more developed, a more competitive, more industrialized economy. That's in contrast to what she calls a factor economy. What's a factor economy? A factor economy is one that is not developed, and the primary sort of activities are around agriculture, mining, and basic uh, services. This is important because the places where rapid entrepreneurial activity seem to be cropping up is in factor and efficiency economies, like sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. The U.S. and Western Europe are known as innovation economies, those that are innovation-driven, knowledge-based economies, and the most developed with lots of established jobs. If you don't have a whole lot of expertise or skill, it's going to be easier to start a small business in Uganda than in Iowa. And Candida Brush says there's another big difference. Well, you have to kind of look at um, what the motivations are. And so we also capture the motivation behind why people start businesses. In the more developed economies, um, entrepreneurship is more what we call opportunity-driven, where people will uh, look and sort of see a possibility for doing something in a market or in a business space. Um, In a lot of the factory economies, and even in the efficiency economies, uh, people will start businesses because they have no better options for employment. And that's what we call necessity-driven entrepreneurship. And so the rate of entrepreneurship in the sub-Saharan Africa, and in some cases Latin America, are higher because we have more necessity-based entrepreneurs. So they just can't get a job, so they need to create their own. They cannot get a job, and so the only way that they can move forward to support their families would be to create their own business. And are we seeing any kind of government support for these entrepreneurs in these countries? I think, and of course Brazil is one of the cases that we um, has had lots of policies to support entrepreneurship. And, um, And so there's lots of activity going on in the Brazilian economy. The African nations, the policies are a little bit more uh, programmatic, maybe not at a national level, where you have um, a particular NGO or you have a particular uh, branch of the government that might do a training program. And so how much of this 
in these developing countries, how much of it is necessity driven? In other words, what's the percentage of necessity driven versus something else? If you go to, I don't know, Barbados or even Brazil, you're going to have about 30% of people, Argentina, that are going to be necessity driven entrepreneurs. You go to sub-Saharan Africa, you're going to have, um, you know, higher rates, 42%. If you look at Malawi and um, Uganda, it's going to be 46%. So the rates of necessity-driven entrepreneurship exceed the rates of opportunity-driven entrepreneurship in many of those countries. And what does that say to you? Well, I mean, clearly, and this is uh, sort of my interpretation, is that necessity-driven and opportunity-driven motives are different reasons for why people get into business. But the real question is, what happens to them after they are started? Are they going to sustain, and are they going to continue, and are they going to grow? And so there's some evidence that says that people that start businesses out of necessity can be just as successful, if not more successful, than those who are opportunity-driven, because they're more likely to persevere. And so... So the relationship between the motivation and the actual success of the business is something that is important to take into consideration. Let's talk about women and entrepreneurship, and that's a subject that you have studied. Mm -hmm. And tell us about that, about how women are forming small businesses and becoming entrepreneurs in in places that are poor, places in Africa, Latin America, Southeast Mm -hmm. Asia. What's happening with women? Well, the rates of women's entrepreneurship is lower in almost every single country in the world. In just seven economies, women have equal or slightly higher levels of entrepreneurship, and those countries are Panama, Thailand, Ghana, Ecuador, Nigeria, Mexico, and Uganda. And so those are the countries where there's parity in the startup rates. Um, On average, sub-Saharan Africa and developing Asia have the greatest level of gender parity. And so, in my mind, that's very positive because we're starting to see more energy and more acceptance of women as entrepreneurs in a lot of countries where historically it has not been socially or culturally acceptable for them to be business owners. I'm wondering if besides the economic uh, environment in terms of encouraging women to take risks and become entrepreneurs, if there's something else that is important in terms of family and societal structure. Well, uh, first of all, I want to answer that question by saying that startup rates and high startup rates are not necessarily the only definition of success. We have to look at the rates, you know, how sustainable those businesses are. And so even though Latin American and African countries have high startup rates, they also have high rates of quit. The U.S. has a much higher rate of sustaining businesses over time. And for any economy, that's what you want to do, is you want to have innovative businesses be started, but you also want them to continue to sustain and grow in some way, whatever, however that growth is defined. So that's important to keep in mind. And so the U.S. is doing a really good job of sustaining businesses at a better rate than most other economies. Now, relative to why the startup rates are higher in some of these countries, is there's probably an historical correlation in that many of these countries, um, women were not um, encouraged, it was not acceptable in terms of social roles and responsibilities, and women were not, in some cases, even allowed to start businesses of their own. So I think with the sort of loosening of cultural values and social roles, um, it has released women in some of these African and South American countries with the opportunity to start businesses where they maybe 
were suppressed before. And I don't mean that in a really negative way. They just they didn't see it as a possibility. And they weren't encouraged to maybe by their uh, family expectations. So some of that is important. Where I think it's really interesting is women entrepreneurs who are succeeding in their businesses and then have their husbands and families join them in their businesses. And that's, I think, very positive because that engages an entire generation of children and it engages um, the entire family in the entrepreneurial opportunities. And in the U.S., I think, Maybe we don't see as much of that. I think we tend to be a little bit more individualistic society. So there's probably a difference in terms of our our values and how we think about that. So maybe we can look at these successful examples of women starting businesses and the men getting involved. I mean, that's interesting. And in traditionally patriarchal societies, that sort of turns that idea on its head. And maybe we could learn something here in, in the United States from that. We could. And not only that, but it also helps that next generation of children, because we also know that if you have someone in your family who has been an entrepreneur, you have a role model. And so now we have women as role models, and we have the husbands coming into the business, so those children are also going to see possibilities for entrepreneurship and starting businesses. Nigeria is one of the seven economies mentioned by Candida Brush's report in which women had equal or slightly higher levels of entrepreneurial activity than men. But even so, she says, something to keep in mind is that whether you're a woman in Nigeria or in the United States, a universal problem is that it's much harder for women to find financing than men. We go to Lagos, Nigeria now, and this profile of a woman entrepreneur. Sam Olokoya reports. Ungozi Egezi Okpara runs Asha Bakes, a bakery in a Lagos suburb. Ungozi was unable to get a job after she graduated from university, even with a degree in mathematics and statistics. So she got a bank loan with which she set up the bakery. Even with the loan, it was not enough to cover all her costs, so it was a struggle, especially since her competitors were mostly men and already well established. In a male-dominated world, where it's believed that women are supposed to be at the backside, they're supposed to be, you know, behind the stage, there is always this thing that comes with them, industries like that. Them all these bigger boys, bigger boys in the industry are people that use enough capital to start. They were really suppressing us when it comes to marketing because with the lead, you have to make gain out of it. Was it was hard. So to what does Ngozi attribute her success? Because I'm this kind of dogged woman, but I'm this kind of, when I'm determined to do something, I believe that there's nobody that's better than me. So if others made it in that business, I believe that I will always make it even bigger. So that's always been my belief in life. Electricity is a major problem for anyone running a business in Nigeria, as public power supplies are most times not available. Most businesses run on generators, but they are expensive to maintain. Just outside one of Ngozi's windows, her huge generator works noisily. The power situation in this country is just outrageous. So you see yourself not making enough in Nigeria because of this, and it's fair for um, small entrepreneurs like us. Ngozi took me around her bakery to show me her production processes. So. This thing now, they pan, four corner pan. So this has not risen. So when it gets risen, they will not put it in the oven. Then it now goes into slicing, just in the section, then, then packaging. 
this particular one now is the tray. Because I told you we have different shapes of bread. So this particular one now is the banana bread, two in one bread. They will not put it in this tray. They don't put it in pan. This one is put in the tray. Four, four in the tray. So from here, it gets risen, then it's, it's now baked. So that's for this one. These are the baked ones now. They are now trying to dislodge it from the pan. Even though Ngozi is pleased that her business has survived, in spite of all odds, she says there is still a long way to go. I think in this neighborhood, we are about the leading bakery within this territory. But we still need a lot of marketing to do so that it gets to other places. So maybe that's one place we are handicapped when it comes to vehicles. Because the vehicle that we have is limited. It can only go um, to supply the ones within the, the distributors. Ngozi's case is not an isolated one. She's one of numerous Nigerian women who believe that a woman's role in society is much broader than just the kitchen. An increasing number of Nigerian women are following in Ngozi's footsteps by striving for independence in the working world. I'm Sam Olukoya in Lagos for America Abroad. You're listening to Global Entrepreneurship on America Abroad. Coming up, are entrepreneurial businesses really the job creators we think they are? You can send us a tweet at America underscore abroad and let us know your thoughts. I'm Ellen Brand, and you're listening to Global Entrepreneurship on America Abroad. Christina Hawley is the chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on Fostering Entrepreneurship, and she's an entrepreneur herself. She founded several startups, including Centers for Innovation, at two universities. And she co-authored a study of more than 500 successful business founders looking for the traits they all share. We had her in to talk to us more about global entrepreneurship and what it means both economically and politically in other cultures and our own. Let us start by getting a definition on the table. What is entrepreneurship? (laughs) Entrepreneurship is uh, creating something new that adds value and captures value. That seems pretty broad. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So to be more specific, um, entrepreneurship is really about creating new organizations that can create value and capture value. So a new business is not new necessarily business. an entrepreneurship opportunity or? Oh, I would say, yeah, I mean, new, new businesses are definitely, uh, tend to be entrepreneurial. It really depends on their plans for growth. I think something that's truly entrepreneurial is something that's poised to not only just start, but also grow and make a real impact. So it's different than a small business. Um, that's right. So. Many times, especially when it comes to policy, uh, policymakers conflate small business and startups or entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, Small businesses often stay small, and they're a very different animal. In fact, 99% of businesses in the United States are small businesses, if you count anything under $10 million uh, a year. So that's a huge impact. You say, wow, those would create lots of jobs. And that's basically what our economy is based on. The truth is that fewer than a quarter of those small businesses actually have a payroll. Hmm. So what we really need to focus on are those businesses that are poised to grow, that are poised to innovate. That's really where economic growth and impact comes from. Both here and abroad. Uh, yes. And in fact, um, abroad, um, there's a lot of excitement now about entrepreneurship abroad, which is great because even five years ago, you know, we could be singing the song about entrepreneurship and nobody cared. But recently, there's been a great amount of buzz worldwide 
about entrepreneurship, which is great. And it also makes me nervous because mm. I think that there's a lot of <laughs> there's uh, a lot of misinformation and a lot of myths that are perpetuated. And I think there will be a lot of disappointment before entrepreneurship can really make an impact. So you recently identified five myths uh, surrounding entrepreneurship. Number one, if we could create more startups faster, we'd solve the job crisis. And you do hear that a lot from our politicians mm -hmm. that, oh, we just need to encourage this kind of innovation and all of a sudden our unemployment rate would drop. So long term, startups will impact the jobs crisis, but it won't happen overnight. Um, startups start small and they take a while and then sometimes they take off and you don't know which ones are going to take off. If we do, we'd all be rich. <laughs> but um, And most of them so fail. Most right? of them fail. So there are, there are studies that show that um, the net new job creation is from new companies. Now, if you really want to pick it apart, of course, new companies create jobs because they are you know, They're new. They can't go anywhere <laughs> but up. But then as they enter the third and fourth years, then they tend to actually shed jobs. But that's made up for by the handful of companies that actually do grow and scale. So those are the ones that we need to focus on. We need to focus on not the number of startups, but we need to focus on which ones scale and how we help them scale and making them successful. So it's a long-term proposition. It won't happen overnight. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We need to be supporting entrepreneurship. We should have been supporting entrepreneurship more five, ten years ago, and we'd be in better shape. Um, so what really, does it mean to support entrepreneurship? That's a very good question. And I think that many um, policymakers get it wrong. In fact, in, um, in Great Britain, they spend $8 billion a year directly investing in startups and startup programs, which is more than they invest in R&D and in universities. So that's, that's lopsided. What you really need to do is you need to invest in early stage research and development. You need to focus on developing an educated workforce and creating transparent and efficient capital markets, which means no corruption, <laughs> which means you know ease of, of um, mergers and acquisitions and IPOs, in addition to the ease of matching early stage companies with capital. All right. So most startups fail, um, mm -hmm. and yet there is a culture of strong entrepreneurship, at least here in the United States. So what is the importance of failure? What can be learned from it? Well, we found from the successful entrepreneurs that we surveyed that learning from failure was important. Learning from success was even more important, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> but, um, you know, I would say that people think about failure wrong. The reason why failure is important is not because you learn from failure. I mean, you do. But the real reason why failure is important is because of what you do afterwards. When you pick yourself back up after failing, you have an increased confidence that you can survive. I mean, I had that experience myself. I was skydiving, and my parachute didn't open. And it was only my eighth jump ever. <laughs> but I have to say, after having cut away my main parachute and pulled the reserve and successfully landed, I realized, oh my gosh, the reserve actually works. And it gave me greater confidence that I knew what to do in that situation. So the actual fact that it, the main canopy failed made me a lot more nervous. And I didn't learn that much. It was really because I already knew what to do. It was the fact that I knew that I could get out of that situation alive.
that gave me more confidence. Uh, I don't know how. Did you, <laughs> have you gone back to? Yeah, I did. I got my license. I have 25 jumps. Wow. Yeah. So I think that that sort of, you know, underscored this. Um, I have a little bit of a contrarian view about failure. You know, everyone yeah. says, oh, you learn from failure. And I don't think that that's the most important thing you get out of failure. And I hate to keep going back to Silicon Valley, but I think that um, you know, Silicon Valley is the epitome of embracing failure and how, in some ways, if you haven't missed payroll at least once or had a startup that failed once, then you're not seen as being really that experienced. So, and so in some ways, it's almost like the, the failures, the companies that fail become the mulch and the fertilizer for the next generation. So what are some of the attributes of a successful entrepreneur? Um, entrepreneurs, the, the entrepreneurs that we studied said that experience, industry experience, and luck were incredibly important for their success. And luck in particular, you, know, you may think, oh, that's just chance. But actually, there have been studies that show that Luck is not just a matter of chance, but it's actually a matter of opportunity identification. It's a matter of being open and seeing the opportunity in what you have. Entrepreneurs are incredibly adept at taking what's in front of them and then seeing an opportunity and then running with it. So not letting opportunities just fritter away, but yeah. just grabbing them. It's, it's a constant connecting of the dots. And so when somebody talks about a particular finding and then see somebody else mentioning that they thought that there may be a market opportunity for something like that, then you realize that, wow, I can hire this person. There's a technology that I can pull into it. And then it pulls all together and it creates that unique business opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it's really about being receptive to things that would otherwise seem completely orthogonal to what you're working on. And can that be taught, that kind of way of looking at the world? I mean, it's really, they call it lateral thinking, right? So there's definitely lots of lateral thinking puzzles. And part of it is, uh, it's it does come with practice. I think some people are much more inclined to be lateral thinkers. Sometimes they probably drive their partners crazy. <laughs> but uh, Not speaking personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I think that that's, it is really a matter of being receptive to things that are not exactly what you're told to do. You know, I think that people think that entrepreneurs are risk takers, and I I don't think of myself as a risk taker um, because I think that it's always calculated and um, it is important to do things that are out of the ordinary, but you don't want to do things that are totally crazy. It's, it's a real balance yeah, between the two. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are some people who are more risk tolerant than others. Yeah. Like some people are just willing to step into the unknown and not yeah. be as freaked out by it. It's true. I do enjoy, you know, venturing into avalanche terrain with skis on skis on my feet, and I do jump out of airplanes. But believe me, I've actually looked at the statistics. <laughs> I'm very analytical, <laughs> and uh, you just have to at some point just trust that you jump, and then the net will appear. And, uh, well, if it doesn't, then something else will save you. <laughs> you move on to the next thing. <laughs> I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Global Entrepreneurship on America Abroad. Coming up, what is the right way to teach someone to become an entrepreneur? If you want to hear our programs on immigration and the global talent search or more on American entrepreneurship in the global economy, visit our website, americaabroad.org, and take a listen. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Global Entrepreneurship on America Abroad. 
Although the United States is still a global leader in encouraging entrepreneurial ventures, we still have a long way to go to help them flourish. Most people do not spring out of the ground fully formed as an entrepreneur, so a main challenge is teaching people how to become one or become a better entrepreneur. From WGBH in Boston, reporter Kirk Carapeza reports on the challenges of teaching entrepreneurship. It's near the end of the semester, and Professor Bill Allett helps his students shred their business plans so that their ideas can't be stolen. Then he advises them on how to get those shredded ideas off the ground into the global marketplace. This is how you go up the ramp of entrepreneurship education. You start with an idea, a technology, and inspiration. Allett manages the Center for Entrepreneurship here at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To stress his point, Allett taps a wooden baseball bat against floor-to-ceiling right-on walls that surround his cramped office. To get out of MIT, you need to achieve what we call escape velocity. Escape velocity, launching a business and keeping it off the ground. Like any field found in the rarefied air of higher education, entrepreneurship is filled with jargon. Jargon often learned on the job. When Alette first started his work here, the former NBA basketball player admits he wasn't sure whether entrepreneurship was something that could actually be taught inside college classrooms. Now, four years later, he's convinced. The way we look at education in a more holistic way where you do projects, there's no doubt in my mind that entrepreneurship can be taught. Students here at MIT take a project-based approach, developing fully formed business plans complete with profit projections. Not all schools do this, but MIT's Bill Allett says they should. Professors need to ask their students, what's your idea and how important is it? Then he says students should go out into the field to find investors. You have to understand who your customer is, because to be successful in business, your odds are much higher if you figure out who your customer is and then build your company back from that. Then Alette advises his students to focus on how to make their business sustainable and scalable. It's not an equation, but there are frameworks that help you do it like there are in other professions. Once you have a major part of the population, 20 30%, wanting to be entrepreneurs. We can no longer just have it being kind of, it's crazy people, just one or two people do it. That's largely why there's been a huge boom in this sort of education in recent years. Today, more than 5,000 courses offered at some 2,600 colleges and universities cater to the non-crazies who want to be entrepreneurs. So it's possible that all those programs at universities have improved the quality of businesses. Dane Stengler is director of research and policy at the Kauffman Foundation in Kansas City, which is working with MIT to find a way to maintain quality in teaching. Stengler says the bad news is, even with the boom in entrepreneurship education since the early 1990s, it hasn't had any measurable effect on the rate of business creation, which has trended slightly downward over the past 20 years. It's possible they've kept the rate from falling further, but it certainly hasn't raised the overall rate of entrepreneurship. And Stengler says there may in fact be an inverse relationship between the number of professors of entrepreneurship and the number of new businesses created. Still, he believes there's real value in entrepreneurship teaching and training. Most of us need it. And he says although the one-in-a-million innovators such as Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg didn't need a classroom, they had one common trait that we can study, perseverance. 
because entrepreneurship is constantly two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. It takes resourcefulness because you're constantly dealing with scarce resources, whether that's uh, money, time, or people. Different ambitions require different sorts of education, so we need to keep those differences and, and distinctions in mind. Lawrence Neely helps students wrestle with these dilemmas in his course on entrepreneurship here at Olin College in Needham, Massachusetts. Sounds like a lot of those sales came fairly easily, which is awesome. But I also expect that some sales are going to be difficult to achieve. Classes like this one have been required ever since the engineering school was founded 16 years ago. Today, standing at the front of his class, Neely tries to help students construct the it factor. If I look at the skills that all students have sitting in front of me, they have these different skill sets to different degrees, and you're trying to develop in each of them the ones that are going to help them get all the way. So start thinking about what you're going to talk about, what you're going to wrestle with, right? After class, Professor Neely answers his students' questions. How do we respond to feedback that is negative? We don't really have a good answer to Part of it is saying thank you and doing the additional investigation that lets you feel like you have a suitable response in the context of your product. As courses like this one have proliferated, Neely says colleges and universities have overemphasized certain traits in students. Take perseverance, for example. It is important, for sure, but he says some instructors are far too fixated on it. They miss the point that students who are dogged aren't always the best listeners. And that can be a handicap because, he says, you need a good team to run a successful business. I think we do them a disservice if we don't give them a way to push beyond their comfort zone because they're bright. They could probably get along fine if they just did okay, because their okay is above average. But there's a responsibility for all these kids that are really bright to actually fail in pursuit of something that's noble and continue to pursue that thing that's noble and ultimately realize it. Neely and other professors agree. Colleges are still in the infancy of teaching entrepreneurship as a discipline. And as they face students who are increasingly price conscious, they'll need to develop their own business plans to reach escape velocity and prove their worth. In Boston, I'm Kirk Carapeza for America Abroad. For more now on the U.S. education system, we bring back Christina Hawley. She's an entrepreneur herself and chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on Fostering Entrepreneurship. Even though she says the United States is a leader in supporting entrepreneurs by investing quite a bit in the early stage research and development, she says that's not enough. Given what you said about what needs to be done to support entrepreneurs, is there a country that is hitting most of those marks? Um, I think the U.S. does it better than than most. I mean, we really we invest quite a bit in research, early stage R and D, um, and that's really important. I'm really worried about the lack of support for higher education and um, for educating the workforce, even at a community college level. Yeah. Trade school, community college, all those, they really need to be focusing on the kinds of skills and talent that is needed by the workforce. And I do think that um, there isn't enough of a tie between what is needed by the startup community and and the innovation community and what the um, universities and also the community colleges are are delivering. In the United States, we do tend to have much more uh, efficient capital markets than others. We we have much less corruption, and we have a great history of immigration. And I think that that's why we have such an entrepreneurial culture here. Why is it important to have an entrepreneurial culture? Um, it's been shown that the majority of economic growth comes from innovation. And innovation often comes from 
entrepreneurial ventures and entrepreneurial thinking. If you're an established incumbent, you like the status quo because it benefits you. So things don't change and things don't innovate if a economy is dominated by just large companies. Large companies can innovate, but in general, lar large companies innovate incrementally and they don't create new revolutions. But why is that good for us in general as a culture, as a society? What's wrong with having mm -hmm. an established, well-run uh, bunch of companies and, and culture? Um, well, stability can be good for business, right? Um, I think that why we care about an entrepreneurial culture is because that's where economic growth comes from. And that's also where uh, it, it all depends on whether you value new ideas and the ability to explore different paths that you might be interested in and have the benefit of new products and new services. But you could argue, and you can see all around you, that established mm -hmm. companies, I'll take Apple as the obvious example, mm -hmm. are creating new products all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the iPhone is one of the most significant innovations in, in modern business that mm -hmm. I can remember, and it was from an established company. So I think that the iPhone, yeah, I mean, the iPhone was innovative, but in a sense, it combined existing technologies that were there that had been developed in many cases by entrepreneurial ventures. So even the whole idea of the iPod and the MP3 player was not created by Apple. And a lot of the technology that's the backbone of the iPhone was not created by Apple, was actually originally came from research that happened in the universities which ended up spinning out, in many cases, into startup companies. Hmm. And a lot of times, there's a myth that government is this big, stodgy behemoth that doesn't do anything entrepreneurial. But in fact, you could argue that the government here in the United States is one of the most entrepreneurial when it comes to investment, because they invest in early stage ideas and research that nobody in the private sector would ever risk their capital. See, that on. surprises me that you say that. Can you give me an example? Sure. If you think about uh, the internet, mm. I mean, the internet would not exist today if it had not been for the government investing in it 40 years ago. Right. What about now, though? Is the government um, investing now in, in innovative ideas? Yeah. I mean, the government and the agencies are tending to be a bit more cautious and more conservative in their funding, which worries me. And I think that the government needs to be much more risk-taking. Um, but, but in general, though, the fact that um, you know the, the NIH does about $50 billion in research every year, and, and um, universities do $50 billion in research every year in, the, in this country, and those are the types of early-stage innovations that can really lead to huge advances. These are real groundbreaking discoveries. So whether it's restoring sight to the blind or it's uh, looking for new, uh, new vaccines or looking for new uh, you know, artificial intelligence or robotics applications, that type of thing. So those are all areas where these are way too early for the private sector. The private sector is much more risk averse. Even the venture capital community because it's much their more, money and they they well, don't want to lose it. Yeah, and they need to they need to um, respond to their limited partners and their investors. So they need to they need to have a return in ten years, and these things take a lot longer than ten years sometimes. And so that's why we absolutely have to keep pushing on that early those early stage investments um, because no. 
nobody else will invest in the types of things that are going to be sort of the groundbreaking shifts, like whether it's the internet or whether it's uh, alternative energy technologies, um, new materials, that, that type of thing. So we absolutely have to push at that early stage. And that's, that's where the government can really make a difference. I think that there's a perception that governments need to proactively get in the business of supporting entrepreneurship. And it definitely helps to have a government that is willing to support entrepreneurship, but it doesn't have to be incredibly active. Hmm. I think a lot of people here in the United States and maybe in other parts of the West think, well, entrepreneurship equals democracy. It means that these countries are becoming more like us, for lack of a better comparison, mm -hmm. and becoming more interested in democracy and becoming stable economies. I think that's a great way of looking at it because actually um, what I worry about is when policymakers start thinking about entrepreneurship equals jobs. And the truth is entrepreneurship will equal jobs eventually, but that's hardly the most important impact of entrepreneurship. You definitely have um, people that become self-sufficient. They're creating value. There's economic growth there. there um, it does, that does lead to democracy, and it leads to free flow of ideas. And that's a much more important area that we need to look at. And so if we only look at jobs as the impact of entrepreneurship, then we're really going to be missing the broader impacts. So what are some other things that we need to look at? I think it's about culture change. It's about the acceptance of failure. It's about the free flow of ideas. It's about um, free flow of, of people and talent. And uh, areas that are very particularly entrepreneurial, like Silicon Valley, have that ecosystem where there's a flow of ideas, a flow of talent, um, large businesses, government, small businesses, investors, capital. Um, they're all working together. And they, they're not worried about, you don't have a large company that's worried about, oh, no, we're just losing this talent to the startup company. They see that as a potential customer in the future. Mm. And uh, they see that as more of a benefit. And they're not as afraid of that. So how do you import that idea to a place like Nigeria? where there are a lot of small businesses and a lot of people with entrepreneurial mm -hmm. ideas, and yet you don't have another Silicon Valley. Right. The first step is to not try to recreate Silicon Valley. Every region has its advantages and its unique traits, and you need to build on that. Um, I'm no expert in entrepreneurship specifically in Africa, but I do know, I do know many people that are working, fostering entrepreneurship, whether it's through accelerators and incubators and programs like that. And what I find exciting is when larger companies also get in the mix and they actually leverage the entrepreneurial businesses to help them, their bottom line. I think it's even more exciting when a company can empower individuals in rural areas to create value as opposed to just extracting value. So farmers, for example, if you can empower, and this is what um, Brookside Dairy in, in uh, Kenya is doing, is empowering entrepreneurial farmers, dairy farmers, some of them are just individuals, to get more out of their land and more out of their cows and then provide that milk to this company that then distributes it, adds value, creates yogurts, create other products, mm -hmm. then you're actually creating more value from the the smaller villages. Hmm. Um, there's a foundation upon which an innovative ecosystem and entrepreneurial ventures grow from, and that's research and development 
and talent, an educated workforce. And so those places that suddenly get excited about entrepreneurship because they see the outcomes in a place like Silicon Valley, they're investing in the wrong place. It's like trying to go and harvest from a field that you haven't actually planted the seeds in. So um, the most important thing is to to invest in those areas, in research and in an educated workforce. Then it's also very important to have um, efficient capital markets and um, free flow of talent, like immigration, and uh, every region is very different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's so many different forms of entrepreneurship. And um, maybe a region like uh, Nigeria, African countries in Latin America, maybe that's one element that they don't need mm-hmm. is immigration. Mm-hmm. But they need more emphasis on creating um, universities or partnerships with the government or something like that. Yeah, I think also when um, when we talk about immigration here in the United States, we're talking about people who come from usually overseas, but even in California, people who come from the East Coast or wherever. When you talk about immigration, you're talking about people who come and they stay and they create a community and they create that ecosystem. Um, so why are we talking about this? Is this a key element to creating entrepreneurship? I mean, do you, can you not have a thriving entrepreneurial culture mm-hmm. without immigration? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that you, you can have a thriving entrepreneurial culture without immigration, but the truth is that that's, those are the types of individuals that are going to be entrepreneurial. My parents escaped Hungary in 56, and um, the stories that I've heard about what they went through to survive and come to a new country with not a penny in their pocket, didn't speak the language. And now my dad has 50 or 60 patents to his name. He has a you know, PhD from Harvard, a master's from MIT, and he's just, you know, he's the epitome of the American dream when it comes to uh, what you would imagine, you know, what an immigrant should be able to do. That's the kind of DNA that creates an entrepreneur. That doesn't mean that you have to be an immigrant to be an entrepreneur. But in Silicon Valley, 50% of startups are founded in part by at least one um, immigrant. So there's definitely, and nationally, a quarter of all startups are started by at least one immigrant. That's Christina Hawley. She's an entrepreneur herself. She has founded Centers for Innovation at two major universities, and she's with the World Economic Forum. And her story, her family's story, really captures the essence of entrepreneurship. Yes, you need to learn how to become an entrepreneur, and the environment needs to be right. But there also has to be a little bit of the entrepreneur in you to begin with. This Hour was written and edited by Martha Little and produced by Jacob Conrad along with Flan Williams. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show is provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. WGBH's on-campus reports are a collaboration with the Forum for the Future of Higher Education and made possible with support from Lumina Foundation and the Davis Educational Foundation. Support for this program was also provided by the John Templeton Foundation. PRI, Public Radio International.